0: This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. On the evening of November 30th, 1948, John Lyons and his wife were walking along the beach near their home in Somerton Park, Australia. It was around 7 p.m. when the couple noticed a man sitting on the sand. They thought he was asleep, as the area was not an unusual place for people to take a nap. The couple didn't pay much attention as they walked by, but the next morning, when John went down to the beach for a swim, the man was still there. What's more, it didn't appear that he had moved at all. So John called the police. When authorities arrived, they confirmed the worst. The man was indeed dead. The body showed no obvious signs of violence or that the man had been in the water, so it wasn't a case of drowning. Perhaps he just sat down and died of natural causes. Exactly who the man was, how he came to be there, and why he had died, were just a few of the many questions surrounding what would become of one of the most infamous unsolved cases in Australian history. He's known only as the Somerton Man. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. True. The mystery man was fully dressed in a white shirt, brown pants, a brown wool sweater, and a red, white, and blue diagonal striped tie. He was wearing brown shoes and a gray and brown double-breasted jacket that appeared to be tailored in the American style of the day. The only thing missing from his outfit was a hat, which was a fashion staple at the time. Curiously, all the labels had been removed from the clothing, As officers went through the man's pockets to try and find some identification, they came across several items you would expect to find. He had two combs, a box of matches, half a pack of chewing gum, a cigarette case with seven cigarettes inside, a bus ticket from the previous day, and an unused train ticket to another nearby beach town. But the man had no wallet or ID. The lack of any identification at all led authorities to consider the possibility that he may have taken his own life. During the autopsy, the pathologist noted the man seemed to have a British appearance and that he was in good physical health at the time of his death. It was estimated that he was somewhere between 40 and 45 years old. He was 5 feet 11 inches tall, had grey eyes, with slightly greying auburn hair. His hands showed no indication that he was involved in manual work. He also had well-developed calf muscles, much like an athlete. The estimated time of death was around 2 a.m., just over four hours after the body was first noticed. The man's last meal had been a pastry, eaten a few hours before he died. That would have been around 10 or 11 p.m. An examination of his internal organs revealed stomach, kidney, and liver damage, an enlarged spleen, and internal hemorrhaging due to acute inflammation of the stomach lining. The man's brain also showed signs of an abnormal amount of fluid. Poisoning had not been ruled out, but tests failed to show any trace of lethal toxins in the system. While the cause of death could not be determined, the post-mortem found the man had not died naturally. The report suggested that he had ingested either a barbiturate substance or what was noted as a soluble, hypnotic. The pastry was eventually ruled out as the delivery source for the unknown poison in question. The man's dental records did not match any on file across the country, but no fingerprints were taken during the autopsy. The story soon broke in the media. In a case of mistaken identity, on December 2nd, 1948, two days after the body was found, A newspaper named The Mystery Man as 45-year-old E.C. Johnson. The man was a resident of a nearby town, but there was a small problem. He wasn't dead. The following day, Johnson walked into a police station to confirm that no, he was not in fact The Mystery Man. The media attention surrounding the unusual circumstances led to several witnesses contacting police. Like John Lyons and his wife, they too had seen the man lying on his back. One couple said they had seen him move, stretching his right arm out before dropping it. That was around 7pm on the evening of his death. Roughly an hour later, another couple who saw the man lying there thought he had shifted position. According to reports, he seemed drowsy or maybe he was intoxicated. Whatever it was he didn't seem to be bothered by the evening mosquitoes. One person told police they saw someone watching the man from the top of the steps, leading to the beach. A week after the discovery, the pathologist had still not publicly announced the likely poisons he believed killed the mystery man. However, the coroner's report did mention two substances. Both were plant-based, and both are toxic in high doses. Based on the travel tickets found in the man's clothing, investigators made inquiries with the nearby train stations. Six weeks after the death, a station employee found a brown suitcase with a missing label. The bag had been checked in around 11 a.m. on November 30th, the day the body was discovered on the beach. Inside was a red dressing gown, a pair of red slippers, size 7, a gray tie, an undershirt, four pairs of underwear, pajamas, a coat, a shaving kit, a pair of pants with sand in the cuffs, and a laundry bag. There were other items in the suitcase as well. Authorities found an electrician's screwdriver, a modified table knife, a pair of scissors with sharpened points, pencils and notepaper orange waxed thread, and a stenciling brush. The orange thread proved to be an interesting clue. It was the same kind found in the stitching of the dead man's pants. It was a brand not available in Australia at the time. Like the clothes the man was wearing when he died, the clothes inside the suitcase all had their tags removed. However, three of the items still had dry-cleaning tags attached. What's more, the tags included a partial name, T. Keen. But the investigators wondered if the tags had been left accidentally or intentionally. It was determined that the suitcase did in fact belong to the unidentified man. So police went to work trying to identify T. Keen. First, they tried tracking down the dry cleaner, hoping for a lead. But that led nowhere. Next, they checked national and international databases, but no one by that name had been recorded missing in Australia, nor any other English-speaking country for that matter. After that came a close examination of the man's clothing and possessions. The man's coat and a metal comb, it turned out, were from the US. But the coat had not been imported. It was evident the man arrived by train, so law enforcement went through inbound train records, as well as records from the Highway Transportation Department. Authorities estimated that the man had likely bought a ticket to catch the 10.50am train to a nearby beach town, but he didn't make it. The estimated timeline had the man then checking his suitcase at the train station before hopping a bus to the seaside. By early February 1949, Just a couple of months after the body was discovered, there had been almost a dozen cases of people giving police what they considered a positive identification of the man. Despite a huge amount of interest from the public, though, his name remained a mystery. So was where he arrived from, but police were confident that he had not come in from the neighboring state of Victoria. Desperate to find out where he came from, The man's autopsy photo and fingerprints were distributed to law enforcement agencies in other English-speaking countries, including the FBI and Scotland Yard. No one ever came forward to identify him. An inquest began in June 1949, almost seven months after the body was found lying on the beach in the South Australian town of Somerton Park. By this time, Authorities had found an interesting clue. Inside the pocket of the man's pants, investigators found a piece of paper with two words printed on it. "Tamam Shud. It was a curious lead, and not the only one. During the initial examination, the coroner noted something odd about the man's shoes. They were absolutely immaculate, having recently been shined and polished. This raised the possibility albeit slim, that the man had died elsewhere and then been brought to the beach. When it came to the possibility of poisoning as the cause of death, there was no evidence at the scene that the man had vomited, which would be expected if either of the plant-based toxins mentioned in the coroner's report were involved. Still, the pathologist was of the view that if it was a case of poisoning, it certainly would not have been accidental. Whether someone else had given it to him, or the man had ingested it himself, was impossible to know. Following the inquest, authorities made a plaster bust of the man's head and shoulders, hoping it would help with the identification. This, unfortunately, did not yield any results. Shortly after the inquest ended, the Somerton man was buried during a Salvation Army service in a cemetery not far from where he was found. The mystery, however, did not fade away after the funeral. In fact, it deepened. Investigators had been looking into the significance, if any, of the words "tamam Shud, which were found printed on the small piece of paper in the man's pocket. They eventually discovered that the paper had been ripped from the page of a book, but investigators still had no idea what the phrase meant. That was until they had the words translated, and found out they were from the last page of the Persian poem, Rubaiyat. The poem was written by 12th century poet, Omar Khayyam, and the words "tamam Shud, translated to, it is finished, or it is over. The overall theme of the piece is that one's life should end with no regrets. Had the man died of suicide after all, or is that what someone wanted police to think? Authorities released a photo of the piece of paper to the media, hoping the public would help find a copy of the book the move actually worked. Not only did someone come forward with a copy, but it was the very same one from which the paper had been torn. The book was a rare edition of an 1859 translation that was published in New Zealand. The owner of the book was ruled out as having anything to do with the case, but this only raised more questions. The book was found in the back of an unlocked vehicle by the car's owner, just a couple of miles from where the body was found. The torn page was not the only curious thing about the book. Inside the back cover, investigators saw five lines of jumbled, nonsensical words. They were written in all caps, and for some reason, the second line was crossed out. It took some time, but police eventually realized that the gibberish, as it was initially thought, was actually a cipher. Top experts in code-breaking were brought in to unscramble the message, but it remained unsolved. The back of the book also contained a phone number, so police called it. To their surprise, someone answered. On the other end was a 27-year-old nurse named Jessica Thompson. At the time, she lived just over half a mile north of the beach where the man was found dead. It was the same area where the book was located. Jessica told police that she had previously owned a copy of the book, but had given it to an Australian Army lieutenant named Alf Boxall a few years earlier. The pair had exchanged a couple of letters, but had no further contact since. Jessica told police that she had no idea why her phone number would have been in the book. She said that she had no knowledge of who the dead man could be, or why he was in the area that night. Police learned that not long before the man turned up dead, a gentleman Jessica didn't know asked her next-door neighbor about her. The man showed an interest in visiting her, but she told police that no one ever did. When investigators showed Jessica the plaster bust of the dead man, reportedly, the color drained from her face. It was like she had seen a ghost. There was no question to authorities that she knew the man, But curiously, she insisted she had no idea who he was. When the interview was over, Jessica said that she did not want her name recorded or her details publicly released. She said it was to maintain her privacy. Detectives agreed to the request, and for many years afterward, Jessica was instead referred to in any reporting on the case as Justin and Teresa Johnson Powell. Police were confident that Alf Boxall. Could be their mystery man. However, after police did some digging, they learned he was alive and well. He still had his intact copy of Rubaiyat. Inside the front cover, Jessica had signed herself, Jestin, and written out a verse of the poem. Alf Boxall told police he had no idea who the dead man could be. Even though the investigation slowed, it was still active. Some years later, a woman was questioned after leaving flowers at the unknown man's grave. She told authorities that she was mourning someone else and didn't know the Somerton man. Another lead presented itself when the receptionist from a nearby hotel to the train station told police that a few days before the man was found, they had an unusual guest. The man had stayed at the hotel for a few days before checking out on November 30th, the day the body was found. The receptionist told investigators the man carried a bag somewhat like a doctor's bag and that he spoke English. Almost 10 years after the Somerton man was discovered, the coroner's inquest continued receiving evidence. However, given the lack of new information, the proceedings officially came to an end in 1958. Yet, a year later, other reports were still coming to light. One man told police that the night before the body was found, he and some friends saw a man carrying another man on his shoulders along the same beach. A prison inmate in New Zealand claimed to know exactly who the Somerton Man was, but both of these tips yielded nothing. Theories emerged about the Somerton Man being involved in espionage and other nefarious activities. Fears that Australia was being infiltrated by communists and Soviet spies during the 1950s and 60s only added to the speculation. The fact that witness statements gradually went missing from the case file over the years didn't help. Alf Boxall, the army lieutenant, looked more and more involved thanks to his work with intelligence gathering during World War II. In 1978, Department of Defense codebreakers took another crack at the words in the back of the book. They concluded that there just wasn't enough text in the code to be able to break it. Some even suggested that it wasn't a code at all. As the years passed, more key pieces of evidence have since gone missing. This included the suitcase, which was destroyed in 1986, and the copy of Rubaiyat, Which went missing in the 1950s. In 1994, the chairman of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine reviewed the case and determined the cause of death was, in fact, poisoning. As originally suspected almost 50 years earlier, the review agreed that it was most likely a plant-based toxin. Eight years later, in 2002, Jessica Thompson was again asked about the case, but she refused to speak further about the man's possible identity. In 2009, a professor at the University of Adelaide decided to focus on deciphering the code in the book. His team also started the process to have the body exhumed for DNA testing. However, the project was hindered due to the original autopsy reports and other forensic documents disappearing. When Jessica Thompson passed away in 2007, her real name started to be mentioned in reports about the case. Some people wondered if her name was the key to breaking the code written in the book. Also, a photograph of Jessica's son, Robin, showed that he shared distinct and genetically rare features with the Somerton Man, specifically his ears and teeth. Some even suggested that Robin, who himself passed away in 2009, may have been the child of the Somerton Man, instead of Jessica's late husband. But when Robin's daughter submitted her DNA for testing, it was found that she had genetic links to Jessica's husband, proving he was Robin's father. In the meantime, the process to exhume the mystery man's body hit a roadblock. In October 2011, the South Australian Attorney General at the time refused the request, citing public interest reasons. I'd have to consider any request that I received, but I don't think digging, digging up people willy-nilly is, is something I want to be a part of. That same year, there was another development. A woman who had been clearing out her late father's things came across a World War I, U.S.-issued identification card in the name of H.C. Reynolds. As with Jessica Thompson's son, Robin, certain facial features in the image on the card raised some questions. The photo led at least one expert to believe the woman's father was indeed the Somerton man. However, archives in the US, UK, and Australia found no record of any serviceman named H.C. Reynolds. Around the same time, records were found of an Australian man named Horace Charles Reynolds, who died in Tasmania in 1953. In 2013, the research project out of the University of Adelaide announced they had an alternate picture of the Summerton Man. They had developed the image based on the original photographs and later released it to the public. Later that year, the case was featured on an episode of Australian 60 Minutes.
1: 65 years after a mystery man was found dead on Somerton Beach, two women have opened up about a family secret, telling 60 Minutes about a...
0: During the program, Jessica Thompson's daughter Kate made a startling revelation, stating that her mother had in fact lied about her background and knowledge of the case. According to her daughter, Jessica apparently did know who the Somerton man was. Kate believed it was possible that both Jessica and the Somerton man could have briefly worked together as spies.
2: Are you saying you see a link between the body on Summerton Beach and espionage, spy rings in Australia? The atmosphere was right in Adelaide for um, a foreign power to have a spy in Australia. Why in Adelaide in particular? Well, the Woomera rocket range, uh, the, the Eastern European refugee migration to Australia was at its peak and, and quite a few of these were being used. Baltic migrants were being used in the uh, construction of the Woomera. Uh, rocket base. Um, at that very time when the body was found on the beach, one of Britain's senior research scientists was in Adelaide, his name was Sir uh, Henry Tizard, and he was the man who was entrusted with uh, Briti- Britain's greatest secrets at the, in 1940 when Britain was trying to draw America into the war. It's a very hard thing to say whether he was a, a Russian spy or a British intelligence officer.
0: Kate acknowledged that her mother aligned herself with communism and did speak Russian. She didn't know how or where her mother learned the language, as Jessica refused to talk about it. Jessica's son's widow agreed with Kate that the Somerton Man was most likely their daughter's grandfather. While they were willing to exhume Robin's body to compare his DNA with the Somerton Man's, Kate opposed the move, wanting to leave her brother to rest in peace. Four years later, the team at the University of Adelaide announced that several hairs from the Somerton Man had been found on the plaster bust. When the DNA results came back in early 2018, they revealed that mitochondrial DNA had been extracted. Despite the breakthrough, the problem was that mitochondrial DNA can only be used to explore maternal links. As we know in this case, the link is paternal, Just over 18 months later though, the research team received some good news. The new attorney general of South Australia had approved the exhumation of the Summerton man's body. The team would finally be able to collect a DNA sample.
1: It's been 72 years and we haven't yet been able to identify the person who's come to be known as the Summerton man. I think at the outset, it's important for everybody to remember the Summerton man's not just a curiosity um, or a mystery to be solved. It's somebody's father, son, perhaps grandfather, uncle, brother um, and that's why we're doing this um, and trying to identify him. There are people we know um, that live in Adelaide who believe they may be related and they deserve to have a definitive answer as to whether they are descendant of the summit man or not. And we would hope from this exercise to gather information which will be able to aid the investigators and point them in the direction um, of inquiries that might help to identify him, his origins and um, maybe how he died. Today what will happen is the exhumation will be conducted in accordance with the terms and conditions as outlined by the attorney, but importantly it'll be conducted in a manner um, which pays respect and dignity uh, to this man Um, on behalf of whoever his family may be.
0: That happened in May 2021, and researchers are confident that DNA testing will provide useful information, which may just help solve one of Australia's oldest and most mysterious cold cases. As always, a huge thanks for listening, and for your amazing reviews and ratings. I'll be back next week with another episode.